0: When I told Wes earlier today the topic of my talk tonight, he said, why don't you just do the whole thing in song lyrics? (laughs) So I'm going to start with one, the most obvious one, and I will not do the whole talk in song lyrics, but um, but then you'll know what I'm going to talk about. So I'll start. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. (laughs) Love is all you need. (laughs) That's it. That's my talk. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So I'm going to talk tonight about, really about metta. And um, I was thinking about the definition of metta, and I wasn't feeling very satisfied with it. And I, um, so I came up with my own. Meta, a natural quality of connectedness, kindness, unconditional love, spontaneous happiness, and well-wishing feeling, or any version thereof, that's already inside us and we often forget, but can be cultivated and deepened. Kind of a mouthful. I'm thinking of submitting it to Wikipedia. <laughs> so... We do this practice, we do these two complementary practices when we're here. Clearly we're doing a lot of the Vipassana practice, probably the bulk of our day is the Vipassana practice. But then there's always a sitting that cultivates the heart quality practices, the metta or it could be forgiveness or other, other similar related qualities. So we separate the two, but it's important to keep in mind that they're actually completely linked. And we've been saying this for days. We've been using the image of the bird with two, with two wings, and one wing is compassion and one wing is wisdom. And the assumption is, as you cultivate the mindfulness, the wisdom grows. As you cultivate the metta, the compassion grows. But really, the more I get to know these practices, the more I see how much they're inherent in each other and that that quality of acceptance that we find that we bring to our present moment experience that when we're fully with something and can completely be with it and accept it exactly as it is this is a kind of metta and inside the metta whenever we, we encounter something that's difficult, that's not metta, we often bring the mindfulness practice, the witnessing, the sense of equanimity and ease into exactly what is present and what is true. So because the metta is in the vipassana, It's almost like you're taking something, you're bringing it into the foreground. So it was in the background a bit, but you're bringing it into the foreground using the metta in this way. And we begin to see that the metta itself is part of the awareness that we're cultivating that the natural quality of awareness that we begin to tap into, and many of us are saying, oh, I'm noticing, I'm sensing, I'm seeing the awareness itself. It has qualities of metta inherent in it. And it's quite extraordinary when joy or spontaneous happiness or well-being, all of these arise in the midst of awareness itself. So I wanna explore metta more so we get to know it more and, um, and then talk more about the relationship and how to work with it. For some people, metta is their main practice. I think Jack talked about that he's often said to people, do metta for a year. That would be a great thing to do when you do your daily practice, just go home and do metta. And, um, and I'm one of those people that did do that and found it tremendously valuable. It just was when I'd sit down, I would just spend my time with the metta phrases, cultivating the metta feeling. For others, it's more of an adjunct practice. It might be something you do a little bit at the beginning of a sitting, a little bit at the end. It might be something that when things get hard, you go to metta. And all of these are perfect, wonderful uses of this practice. Now, I know that some of you are not drawn to the metta practice. I'm very familiar with asking people in interviews, and I say, so how's the metta going? And they say, oh, kind of not, not for me. And that's also actually perfectly fine. Some people find themselves in a point in their practice where they're really drawn to the luminosity and the clarity and the peace that comes strictly through the Vipassana practice. And the metta may be just a part of it, but it may not be what they're cultivating deliberately. And that's okay. And what I've seen is, for those of us who walk this path, our practice is long. It's really a lifetime practice. And there may be points in our lives where the metta practice becomes the most important thing. And we do it, or, you know, someone who... right, I confess it nauseated me for a long time. (laughs) Really, for the first number of years of my practice, it seems so kind of fake and smiley. And, um, And then at another point, it completely spoke to me. So there isn't a rhyme or reason. So some of you are just really, really drawn to it, and others, it's different. And so just respecting where you are, giving it a try, especially if you're new, and planting the seeds and seeing what happens. We often teach metta on longer retreats, like month-long retreats, as what's called a jhana practice. And jhana is a- allowing the mind to become absorbed with a single pointed concentration, and you repeat the metta phrases with the deliberate intention of becoming more and more concentrated. And this is a wonderful practice and very, very powerful and useful. And what it does is the mind enters states of bliss and joy and rapture. And with that kind of concentrated awareness, one can then take it and turn to the Vipassana practice. So you can do it as a practice unto itself. You can also do it as something that you then apply to your Vipassana meditation. And... um, Tonight, what I'm focusing on won't be so much this, this version of the practice, but more how we do it in our daily life and in our, in, our, in our retreat practice here, where it becomes a kind of purification practice, where we do it to access this quality of the heart that for some of us feels far away, for some of us feels a little bit closer. For some of us, it feels really close when we do metta for our dog, but really far away when we do it for ourselves. Or really close when we do it for all beings, but really hard for ourselves. Or easy for all sorts of people except your mother. You know, it's just, we all have our, we get to learn a lot as we do metta because we see the places we can't love. And that's great because it's great information and it gives us a place to work. And it's so interesting actually. So I know that many of us struggle with self-hatred as we practice, or self-judgment, self-criticism. And metta is a phenomenal antidote for working with that. And some of us have seen that over, the t- over time, how applying metta can work with these feelings of, I'm not good enough, that person's doing better than I am, I can't meditate, I hate myself, whatever it is that's coming up for you. And it can transform our minds it can transform that part of us that feels self-judgment. And um, now I live in Los Angeles and I work at um, a mindful awareness research center, it's called, where we're doing education and research around mindfulness. And so I'm very interested in kind of the latest research on this stuff and we're doing some at our center as well. But it, this summer, a study came up out of Duke University about what they call self-compassion. And what they showed was that when they taught, there's been a lot of hype around um, self-esteem. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the kinds of questions that come up about it. When they try to teach kids self-esteem, they find that it can lead to a little inflation, in a sense of inflated sense of self. But when they teach them self-compassion, there's a transformation that happens towards being more loving to themselves. And what they did in this study is they, they did not have people go through a rigorous boot camp of mindfulness and meta like you're going through. This was not the study. They took a bunch of college students and they taught them a little bit of mindfulness, a little bit of meta, and then they taught them what they call shared humanity, which is... Showing them that we all have gone through the same situations in life. That we've all experienced a death or grief or a loss. And most of the time, we, we think we're alone. I mean, that's the amazing thing. Even though, I guarantee, having done many interviews over the course of this week, there's a lot of the same themes going on there. We think we're alone. We think we're the only one. And so I've done this on retreats where I've asked people, not retreats, on workshops where I've asked people to stand up and say, stand up if you've ever looked in the mirror and not liked what you saw. And guess what happens? Everybody stands up. Or stand up if you've ever lost someone that you love. And people stand up. Or stand up if you've ever really worked hard at something and couldn't weren't successful failed and pretty much everyone stands up and as we do this we start to see that we're not alone that we're all in the same struggle here and this cultivates more self-compassion loving kindness compassion for ourselves So when we work with those judgmental voices, we can work on two levels. We can work on the thought level. And we've been talking a lot about the thinking problem that we all have, right? And um, how to work with it. Noting the thoughts. When you have thoughts that are difficult, um, judging thought, fearful thought, anxious thought, ways of depersonalizing it, giving yourself a little space around the thoughts remembering that when you're thinking something that's difficult, you're often having a bodily experience. So if you can sense into your body in the midst of, I'm not good enough, I don't, I don't like myself, whatever is coming up, sensing into your body and noticing what's happening can often soften the whole experience and allow for this space, And this disidentification that we've been talking about, the not taking the experience so personally, it's just a thought. We all, we get so caught in our thoughts. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker? It's my favorite bumper sticker. Don't believe everything you think. You've seen that one? This is really, really important teaching from a perspective of Vipassana, what we're doing here. This book, has been, um, this book has been on the bestseller list for a while, the book Eat, Pray, Love. Some of you have read it, I'm sure. And um, there's, a pra- there's a point where she's having, she's in, it's a, it's a story for those of you who don't know of a woman who travels to Italy and then India and then Bali. She eats and, and then prays and then loves, <laughs> the last part. And um, this is her in the, she's in the meditation center in India, and she's having a really, really hard time, and she thinks her meditation is horrible, and she's having a lot of self-judgment. And this is the conversation she has with this older man who has um, kind of become her mentor. And um, he calls her groceries, which is um, because he, when he first met her, she was eating a lot, so he, he named her groceries. Anyway, um, What should I do about my meditation practice? I asked Richard one day as he's watching me scrub the temple floors. He's lucky. He works in the kitchen, doesn't even have to show up there until an hour before dinner, but he likes to watch me scrubbing the temple floors because he thinks it's funny. Why do you have to do anything about it, groceries? Her meditation practice. Because it stinks. Says who? I can't get my mind to sit still. Remember what the guru teaches us. If you sit down with the pure intention to meditate, whatever happens next is none of your business. So why are you judging your experience? Because what's happening in my meditations cannot be the point of this yoga. Groceries, baby, you've got no idea what's happening there. But I never see visions. I never have transcendent experiences. You want to see pretty colors or you want to know the truth about yourself? What's your intention? All I seem to do is argue with myself when I try to meditate. That's just your ego, he said, trying to make sure it stays in charge. This is what your ego does. It keeps you feeling separate, keeps you with a sense of duality, tries to convince you that you're flawed and broken and alone instead of whole. But how does that serve me, she asks. It doesn't serve you. Your ego's job is just isn't to serve you. Its only job is to keep itself in power. And right now, your ego's scared to death because it's about to get downsized. You keep up this spiritual path, baby, and that bad boy's days are numbered. Pretty soon, your ego will be out of work, and your heart will be making all the decisions. So your ego's fighting for its life, playing with your mind, trying to assert its authority, trying to keep you cornered off in a holding pen away from the rest of the universe. Don't listen to it. How do you not listen to it? Ever try to take a toy away from a toddler? they don't like that, do they? They start kicking and screaming. Best way to take a toy from a toddler is to distract the kid, give him something else to play with, divert his attention. Instead of trying forcefully to take thoughts out of your mind, give your mind something better to play with, something healthier. Like what? Like love, groceries. Like pure divine love. So we become aware of the thoughts that plague us and we antidote it with this metta, with this love. And so it started, we're, we're coming at it on two different angles. We're coming at it, the thought of being aware of the thoughts, really noticing, noting, not letting those thoughts get out of control, stopping them when we need to, not in a nasty way, not stop thinking, that doesn't work. But in it is, oh, there's this, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's worry. And then at the same time, we're cultivating this loving quality, this loving, this metta as a new way of being, as a new way of changing our heart. Some people often think it's selfish to sit there and meditate. And I think it's selfish to be sending loving kindness to ourselves. It's actually, it's not selfish. It's not selfish. Being here is not selfish. Transforming yourself has huge repercussions for everyone and everything you touch in this world. Bell Hooks, who's a writer and feminist critic and activist and many things, Says, when I talked with friends and acquaintances about self love, I was surprised to see how many of us feel troubled by the notion as though the very idea implies too much narcissism or selfishness. We all need to rid ourselves once and for all of misguided notions about self love. We need to stop fearfully equating it with self centeredness and selfishness. Self love is the foundation of our loving practice. Without it, our other efforts to love fail. So some of us have been tapping into this love, this love that we're cultivating through the metta practice and through the vipassana practice. It's coming. It's not, again, they're not that separate. And what I'm hearing often is, I don't understand how to live now that my mind isn't so filled with all this drama. You know, it's like I'm so used to the fear and the anxiety and the aversion and the grief and the rage. And actually now I'm kind of feeling okay. Like it's kind of good. It's not too bad. It's, it's peaceful. It's a little boring, but it's peaceful. And I just really want to encourage you for those who are making these shifts who are seeing. Someone spoke today of feeling this right to exist on the planet to exist and inhabit our own goodness, our peace, and our ease. We all have that right. And so because our mind isn't used to it, we start looking for um, excitement or something interesting to do. Well, this isn't that exciting. But actually, we can begin to train our mind to become more accustomed to these places of ease and peace and relaxation. And we can begin to discriminate them. We can feel what is ease like, what is ease like, and is it different than relaxed? Is that different than peace? Is that different than equanimity? We can become very interested in these more subtle states, and notice what's happening to our breath and our body as our states get more subtle. It's very, very interesting, and there's an opening, and there's the possibility, the potentiality for these states of joy to arise when our mind isn't so crowded with the difficult, the difficult stuff. So when we're practicing loving kindness, just on our own, when we're practicing metta, I like to um, Philip doesn't like acronyms, but I do. And here's here's one that I think is useful. It's it actually doesn't stand for anything, so maybe it's not officially an acronym. But it's <laughs> C E N E C E N E, and that stands for contact, encourage, notice, and expand. And what that means is that when you're doing the meta and you're trying to you you. Um, brought to mind the person that you're working with, and it could be yourself. We first see, we contact the experience of metta by, as we conjure it up, That the assumption is, and this is what I really believe, it's inside us. The metta is already there inside us. And so we contact that feeling that's already present. We just notice it, so we make contact, we connect with that feeling. And then the E is encourage. And the way we encourage it is by saying the phrases, having them come, ha, saying the phrases. But for some of us, it's more visual. For some of us, we see things as we're doing the metta. We might see fountains or, or um, water or colored lights. And this is very natural in the process. Some people are quite visual. So there's visual imagery happening. And in fact, one of our teachers, um, the, the nun Ayakema, who is an elder in this tradition who's passed away, but she used to teach metta as a very visual practice. She'd say, okay, imagine there's a fountain in your heart, and it's spreading out with colored rainbow water in thousands of directions. And imagine that there's a jewel in your heart, and it has so many facets of light and color and shape, and that's your goodness, and you can touch it. Or imagine that metta is like a lake and you can just jump in and feel the loving kindness. So there's ways of cultivating the metta that's, um, that brings in our senses. So we can. some of us, the phrases work really well. As you say the phrase, it cultivates, it encourages. For some, it's more imagery based. For some, it's just you're feeling it. You're really feeling it and letting it pervade your body. You're doing this, you're contacting it, you're encouraging it, and your mind wanders off. Just like with the Vipassana meditation, your mind wanders off, so what do you do? You just come back. It's very natural as you're doing it, your mind will come and go and come and go. So that's C-E-N, the N is notice. Metta is a very physical experience. So when you say the phrase, there's an actual emotional or physical response going on. Not always, but we can, often, we can sometimes tap into that. So we, we contact it, we encourage it, and then we notice the impact on our bodies and mind. And it's a little bit like you drop a stone into a lake and you watch the ripples. You feel the ripples. So I like to do metta very slowly. <laughs> So it gives me a lot of time to just sense, may I be happy, how's that landing inside my body? And it's so interesting to me to explore the process as I say these phrases. So the E, the last part of it, the C-E-N-E, is to expand. But sometimes we just stay with the contact, the, the encouraging, the noticing. And we may stay with ourselves for a really long time. Or we might stay with a benefactor or someone we love. And then later we might switch and bring in somebody that we're having a hard time with or someone that we feel really, really drawn to working with. So sometimes, as many of us have been experiencing, as we do the metta, we do it and nothing happens. And this this can be really frustrating. Or we do it and everything happens except it's everything except metta. You feel frustrated, you feel angry, you feel exhausted, you feel numb, you feel bored, you feel anything. So there's a couple of things to do when you encounter this in the loving kindness practice. One is just to keep going, no matter what you're experiencing. This is particularly if you're feeling a numbness or nothing happening at all. Just keep going. Keep trying and see. It's like the planting of seeds, okay? There's some trust. There's a little trust you have to have that it's having some effect. And a story that many of us have heard, but our, one of our teachers and friends, Sharon Salzberg, was doing lots and lots of meta practice and she was doing it and practicing it and nothing was happening. It was just dry, boring, dull, but she just kept at it, kept at it. And at the end of the retreat, she went home and um, she was making herself a cup of tea and she dropped the mug and it fell on the floor. And the first thought that came to her mind is I'm such a klutz. And the second thought was, but I love you anyway. And it was so interesting for her to see the shift in her heart and mind. That it wasn't, so she still had the automatic reaction, but then after that, even though it seemed like nothing was happening, she had changed. She had shifted her mind, her brain. So there's keeping going. The second thing you can do is if you're doing the the loving kindness and something else arises, turn your mindfulness to whatever it is that arises. So you sort of switch out of the loving-kindness phrases and cultivation into the, the mindfulness. So you start going, oh, okay, what's here? It's, it's a pain in my chest, and it's really burning, and you really bring your attention into the body using the mindfulness. So that's one way of um, incorporating the two practices. And as you become aware, notice what happens. Does it shift? Does it change? Does it stay the same? You explore. You can learn a huge amount here in this way. And the third is that you could turn the metta on the part of you that's in pain. So the part of you that's suffering out of grief or fear or boredom? What is it to send the metta to us in the midst of whatever we're feeling? Sending it to ourselves as a child. Imagine holding ourselves. There's so many ways to work with it, and I just encourage so much creativity. The reason all these things come up when we do metta and I go back to it when I called it a purification practice. This metta practice is a slow unlayering of our hearts and minds. We sit with, we try to bring love to ourselves, and then we get to see every way we can't love ourselves or another. We try to bring love to someone else, and we see what gets in the way. And what we do is we get to explore the places that were hurt and in pain and wounded. And we bring a loving heart and an open, compassionate mind to the experience. It's kind of like if you're ever, when you're in a relationship and first it's all lovey-dovey and then all your stuff starts to come up. It's because of the field of love that allows the stuff to come up. It wouldn't come up otherwise. Your fear, your anxiety, is this gonna work? I don't know. But it's because of that field of love. And we're doing that love with ourselves. We're bringing the metta to, or if we're doing it for ourselves, we're bringing the metta there and we get to see the places we don't love. And it goes, oh, I need air. It's like coming up for air, please. Notice me, pay attention to me. And then you give that love. And that gets, there's a healing that happens. There's a whole field of um, what they call interpersonal neurobiology. And this field is they're studying the brain and um, the way humans attach to each other. And the way when a child is born in this field of what they call it attachment. Um, is it a healthy and secure attachment? And you can study the brains of using brain scans and imaging. You can find out the c- parts of the brain that are activated when there is a healthy, secure attachment between a child and a parent. And what the speculation is now, based on the very early brain imaging studies, is that the same exact thing is happening. The same parts of the brain are getting activated when we meditate. Meaning, we're learning to parent ourselves. We're learning to give ourselves the love that we may have never gotten. And some of us have, and some of us have had healthy childhoods, and a lot of us haven't. But we have an opportunity as adults to reparent, to become another language, become our own best friend through the practice of the mindfulness, the meditation, the coming back to ourselves with loving kindness. And what we see as we do this is that sometimes, and this is whether you're doing the metta practice or whether you're doing the, the vipassana practice, we go back and forth all the time between feelings of wholeness and feelings of fragmentation, between, between joy and grief, between rage and, and you know incredible happiness. And as you're on the retreat, you've seen this whole range of up and down and movement back and forth. It's so interesting. It's like this pendulation because we're bringing the, the light of love and compassion, and insight, and clarity to our experience, and then there's a place of wholeness and healing, and then there's places where we can't, we aren't loved, and we, where we have difficulty, and then that gets paid attention to with clarity, and wisdom, and we have insight into ourselves, and then we can rest in a place of clarity, of joy, of ease, of non-attachment, of awareness. And then we go into the next thing, and that's sort of the process that happens, and then we come out of that, and then a new thing happens. And, you know, I hear stories. Someone came in and said, I was, someone was doing, someone was crying, and I just saw this person crying, and I felt such tremendous compassion coming from my heart to this person. And then I turned around to go to my walking spot, and someone was in it. (laughs) And then I felt rage, <laughs> all within the course of three seconds. And then she noticed it and she started laughing. And then she was feeling joy and realizing that how strange these human minds are. You know, we're really, it's amazing how easily we get startled and how easily we get reactive. And, but what we're doing is we're cultivating, we're building bigger and bigger capacity to hold whatever we encounter. So there's a, there's a myth that I'm sort of interested in, and it's the myth of um, Icarus. And Icarus, if you remember, is the son of, let's see, this, so just the very quick version. So his father was Daedalus, who was, um, he was a craftsman. He was a master craftsman, and he built, if you remember your Greek mythology, the, the labyrinth with the minotaur, the monster, in the labyrinth. And then he helped someone get in, and so he got in big trouble, and he was imprisoned in his own labyrinth. And when he was there, he kind of figured his way out, because he knew how to get out, and then the only way to get to safety was to fly. So he was with his son, Icarus, and he created these wings that he made out of... um, out of, I guess he made it, he made them out of feathers and wax. And he attached them to his son and they flew up towards the sun. And as the myth goes, they got too close or the boy got too close. The boy got exhilarated with his ability to fly. And then he went crashing down to the sea because the wax melted in the wings. And of course that's a very tragic story And there's a lot in it when you think about it. There's a lot about about the human condition, about the way parents have expectations for their children. And children carry the baggage of their parents and want to please and reach success and fly to great heights and sort of overextend their capacities and don't quite listen. And we've all done this in so many ways. We've all done things where we've overextended or not listened or done things that weren't smart. And it's so important that we learn to forgive ourselves for these foibles because it's so human. And that's what's so powerful about myths is they're taking, it's taking what we all do and creating these stories about it that are, that are part of our culture and, or some of our cultures, different in different cultures So a few, let's see, a few, gosh, a few years ago, I was at a retreat center called Vallesitos, which is a beautiful retreat center in the Carson National Forest in New Mexico. And it's um, it's huge. It's one of the most gorgeous places I've ever been. Just incredible mountains and lakes and, There's a ranch on it where they hold retreats for um, primarily for activists, but for really, it's wide open for many people. And I was there, I was teaching, but I was going through a hard time. So just in case you think teachers never go through a hard time, we do (laughs) from time to time. And I remember I was going through a hard time and um, someone had said to me, go up, why don't you, I said, I wanna go for a walk, go see the Icarus. Freeze and a frieze f-r-i-e-z-e like a sculpture the sculpture of Icarus that was on the mountaintop and I was having a really hard time I was feeling it was sort of when I was beginning to teach and I didn't really trust myself and oh was I doing it right and I was feeling a lot of self-pity and maybe I'm doing a bad job and there was just a lot of stuff going on in my head and so I was kind of pointed to where I said, all right, I'm going to go up and see if I can find this Icarus freeze. And they said, just go up. It's on that ridge. And they just pointed. And there are mountains all around, so it's not the easiest thing to do. So I just kind of went in the direction. And he kept saying, you go to that tree and make a left and then head up. And, you know. and so I was following this. And I was just feeling more and more bad about myself at that point. And oh, it's just, it's, I'm just not doing too well. And as I got to the top of the ridge, suddenly there it was. I just found it somehow. And it was nothing like I imagined because I knew the story, the one I just told you. But this was entirely different. What this was, was this beautiful carving in the face of the rock of Icarus, like this, with the wings out, kind of fallen, being held by this incredible mother, like this Mother Earth. And she had the most beautiful, beatific smile on her face, like everything was okay, And he was just resting in her arms, And I saw that and I just knelt down and I just started weeping because it was metta. This was it. This was metta. The vast capacity to hold whatever struggles and fears and self-hatred and dislike and longing, this was it. She could hold it. And this is what we're cultivating here. And I knew it. And I sort of, I just bowed to it and laid some flowers down on the altar. And I said, oh, I won't ever forget this. And it stays with me every time I get into those places. I remember, yeah, the metta, it can hold everyone and everything. This is what we're doing. We're cultivating a mind and a heart that's big enough to contain everything. No matter what it is, we can hold it in the space of metta, of compassion and understanding. And what we see is that over time, the metta becomes the ground of our being. It stops being something we occasionally have a little taste of now and then, or we cultivate for a few minutes when we practice, but it becomes who we are. And this is, you know, it takes some time to stabilize, and this is when I was talking about the people who are starting to say, oh, there's not too much drama, it's kind of peaceful. It's allowing the space of metta to become our set point, to become ground zero, and it's, it's, Becoming, it's a little unstable initially, but after a while it begins to settle in and it becomes what we can always return to. We become this great mother who can hold the fallen child that is ourselves, or father, great father. And then metta starts to come to us more and more. And many of you have been describing whether you're doing the metta practice specifically or it's coming to you through the vipassana practice. But the metta has so many different qualities and textures and shapes and flavors. And sometimes it's vastly compassionate. And sometimes it's spacious and open and as fast as the sky. And sometimes it's very impersonal. It just is this sense of hmm, things as they are. And sometimes it's joyous, this amazing quality of just absolute delight in being. And sometimes it's physical, and sometimes it's via images, and sometimes it's interconnected. Sometimes you're just walking around and it's like, oh, there isn't separation between me and the trees. We're the same, and sometimes it has a deep equanimity, and sometimes it's hilarious. We're in this place of metta, and we just go, oh, this is the human condition. We we humans, we're a little nutty, and we just laugh, and we treat ourselves like we would just be indulgent with a child in a loving way. And we can taste these places in our practice. And I know many of you are touching them in each day as we practice, especially at this point in the retreat where we're starting to feel the results of all the hard work. And I just encourage you to acknowledge them, feel them, let them in, don't skip over them. Because this is your true nature shining through. This is your Buddha nature that you're getting a glimpse of. And then ultimately this love that is our being reaches out and touches everyone and everything. And this is the way the practice works. It's not selfish. It is part of, as we, we change and then people change in our life in relation to our changes. And we become more and more equipped to serve and our metta becomes deeply, intimately connected with our compassion and care for all beings. And not everyone is drawn in this way, but it often, you see it as a flourishing, one version of a flourishing of this practice. One of the phrases I often use when I do, um, it's it, my, what's called bodhisattva vows which are vows to awaken for the sake of all beings. And I say, for as long as space exists and sentient beings endure, may I be the living ground of love for all beings. And that's part of my vow and my dedication so that this love and this awareness and all that is cultivated becomes a part of everyone and everything in some way. So, I think I'll just end with a little story that happened to me with a teacher once where I was, doing a, um, I was doing some practices that were about the cultivation of metta, but they were in a slightly different form. They were similar to where you cultivate what's called this remembrance or recollection of the Buddha. And what you do is you cultivate... Uh, You remember all the goodness, all the incredible things about the Buddha, or about someone who's tremendously wise and compassionate. You just, you sit there and you imagine, oh, this person has this capacity, this Buddha has this capacity to serve all beings, and every, everything that's good on the planet is this manifestation of the Buddha, in this case. Um, You imagine kindness and compassion and fearlessness and joy and all emanating from this this being and I was talking to a teacher about it and I said I said it's so interesting to me because it's not so hard to do if you set your mind to it you can imagine incredible virtue you really can, you can imagine goodness and service and generosity and ease and it's just, you just turn your mind in that direction because we all can change our mind. And I said to him, so it's just so funny to me because if, if, if I'm able to do this, this all must be inside me, right? And he looked at me and he said no. And then he said, it is you. So just take a moment to take in. And close your eyes, maybe. Just take a moment. To sense into wherever you are right now, right here, And let whatever you're feeling, become aware of whatever you're feeling, sensing, knowing, thinking. And let it be here. Whatever is here, let it be here. And see if you can find in you the capacity wherever it is, whatever shape or size right now that capacity for goodness whether it's that ability to hold all in your heart like that sculpture I talked about or it's just that glimpse that taste of the great joy of the Buddha nature inside you. Or maybe it's just ease and relaxation and peace. Locate that, find it, let it be here. It is you. It is you.